This week, Zika virus and birth defects, and income and life expectancy in the United States. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. I'm your host, Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I'm joined today by Nathan Zilbert, who is a resident in general surgery at the University of Toronto. Hey, Nathan, how's it going? I am great, Amol. How are you? Uh, really good. Nathan, uh, we have two like super blockbuster topics today. If we don't get a lot of tweets and retweets and hashtags, we are, we are not doing our uh, social media jobs right. All right. I'll retweet you if you retweet me. And let's be deal. And let's be <laughs> let's be honest. The reason that we're doing this is because people that we admire tweeted these very issues. So this week Hillary Clinton tweeted about Zika virus. Um and Su- superstar surgeon Atul Gawande tweeted about tweeted about uh inequality. He didn't just tweet, he unleashed nine sequential numbered tweets about one one dash nine two slash nine that kind of thing (laughs) yeah that's right subsections so for our listeners i mean the reality is if you want to know what we're going to say you might as well just stop listening now go to twitter and you'll have the summary in 140 characters or less especially since both of these topics are really on the putting it kindly periphery of our expertise Yes, although let's you know we've we've done our due diligence to be able to talk about. We this. have read the articles. That's true. Yeah, and uh, obviously, don't stop listening. Continue listening, dear listeners, and also please go to iTunes and leave us a rating or comment, or please share this episode on your social media networks. It really helps get the word out. Okay, before we dive into our two blockbuster topics, um, we are going to have a two truths, one lie segment from our very own medical student, Jennifer Peng. Take it away, Jennifer. Hey guys, it's time for another game of two truths, one lie. I'm going to tell you three interesting facts. Two will be real and one will be a lie. Join us and put your knowledge to the test and see if you can guess which statement is the lie. This week's game is all about the world of contraception. So let's begin. Statement number one. There is no medical need for oral contraceptive pills to be prescribed in a cycle of 21 days on and 7 days off. Statement number 2. As part of the lactational amenorrhea method of birth control, if a breastfeeding woman has not yet regained her period, she will not be able to get pregnant again. Statement number 3. The risk for venous thrombosis in women who take low-dose oral contraceptives is lower than the risk for venous thrombosis in pregnancy. Think you know which statements were true and which one was the lie? Stay tuned and we'll reveal the answer later on in this episode. And we're back. Okay, so we're going to leave it. You like that? I like that sort of, it was like a little, uh, you know, television... <laughs> like late nineties, you know, TV commentator situation. You remember that Seinfeld episode where Kramer, <laughs> Yes, I do remember that Seinfeld episode. <laughs> Classic. Okay, so um, <laughs> we're ready to dive in now, and we will revisit the two truths, one lie segment a bit later on in the episode. So, Nathan, talk to me about 
this large and important paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine about Zika virus and birth defects. Yeah, so this uh, hot off the press paper from this week in the New England Journal is called Zika Virus and Birth Defects, Reviewing the Evidence for Causality. And the headline here is, according to the authors from the Centers of Disease Control, that there is, in fact, a causal relationship between Zika virus and this uh, syndrome of birth defects most uh, widely known to include microcephaly. Okay, so Nathan, obviously in this situation, we're not randomly assigning people to exposure to Zika virus. So how do we attribute causality in uh, this kind of setting? Yeah, so there are a few different ways that uh, epidemiologists go about trying to demonstrate that a particular exposure is related to a particular uh, clinical condition. And specifically with teratogens, there are uh, a group of criteria called the Shepherd criteria that the authors went through in this paper to demonstrate that Zika virus is associated with this particular syndrome. So um, we'll go through them kind of one at a time, and not all of them actually are, are relevant to in infectious exposures, but we'll go through the relevant ones and talk about the evidence that the authors put forward. So, And so this paper was the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, basically s summarizing and, and critically appraising the existing evidence. Exactly. And coming to this firm conclusion that there is a causal relationship, and we can obviously talk about the implications of, of that type of uh, firm statement, uh, maybe once we review the once we review the evidence and the criteria. Okay, perfect. So some some of these are, are, are relatively straightforward, actually. And, and the first one, I, I think, is it basically the the criteria is that the exposure to the teratogen has to occur early in pregnancy, either in the first or early second trimester, and uh, they basically have a significant amount of evidence mostly in, in Brazil, where they've been doing uh, uh, measurement of Zika virus levels in some uh, affected mothers um, in, the, in pregnancy. And, and, they've, and they've shown with microbiological testing confirmation that Zika virus has been uh, demonstrated, uh, in, you know, demonstrated infection in, in early pregnant patients. Okay. And I guess the theory there is it has to happen while the fetus is developing. Exactly. Okay. So that's the first main criteria. Check. Check, number one. Number two is that there have to be two high-quality epidemiological studies confirming an association. So this uh, criteria, the authors say, has been partially met, mostly because the studies that have been done are either on small scale or what they call ecological studies that show geographic and temporal relationships of the Zika virus and of the birth defect syndrome, which they describe as compelling. But these aren't, you know, uh, large cohort studies that were designed to uh, demonstrate this relationship. There are a couple of smaller studies that have been done in Brazil where they've uh, looked at a, a group of women, generally less than 100 in the couple studies that have been done, uh, where they have pregnant women who develop a viral syndrome, particularly a rash, and then they test those women for Zika virus, and those that uh, were testing positive, they went on to have a 29% rate of the relevant birth defects compared to zero for those women that, uh, despite having viral symptoms, were negative for Zika. So 
That's pretty compelling. It's compelling, but it's a small number of patients. So it doesn't meet the full criteria of two large high quality studies, but they describe that criterion as being partially met. And I, I should mention that you don't have to meet all the criteria for the final conclusion to be this is a teratogen. Okay. It's a bit of a more complex algorithm than that. Yeah. Okay. All right. So second criterion, not totally met. So the third one is that the teratogen that is being studied has to result in a specific syndrome as opposed to just birth defects in general, which obviously makes sense. So everybody uh, who's been following this issue in the news knows of the main uh, finding of microcephaly uh, that is associated with Zika virus exposure. Some of the other findings associated with this syndrome are intracranial calcifications, some eye abnormalities, club foot, and redundant scalp skin. Uh, and all this is associated with significant neurological impairment. So in addition to just microcephaly, there's this whole syndrome. And specifically, this redundant scalp skin is actually not seen in other uh, occasions of microcephaly. So there's... It kind of suggests that at one point, like that the... Does the skull actually shrink or something? Like you know, I like... think that. Well, I think it suggests. I mean, you know, I, I don't really know, yes. but one uh, idea that they put forward is that skull development and uh, the skin of the head development is maybe affected by different embryological signals, hmm. and the skull development is uh, delayed or uh, impaired, and the skin development is not. And maybe in other uh, occasions where microcephaly develops uh, from other causes, um, they don't see that. Sure. So uh, the redundant scalp finding is uh, suggestive to the epidemiologist that this is a unique syndrome from a unique exposure. Okay. So this, uh, there, the fact that there's a specific syndrome, you know, that makes sense. It contributes to your strength of the causal inference. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. The next uh, criteria is basically another, I think, kind of fundamental principle is that you have an observation of a rare exposure associated with a, a particular rare event. They call this the astute clinician approach as, I guess, how one might initially identify that such a phenomenon is happening. So microcephaly is extremely rare in general. Six out of 10,000 live births in the United States uh, was, was one statistic. Now, Zika virus exposure in endemic areas is not rare, but for those traveling from, let's say, North America to endemic areas, the exposure would be considered rare. So when they've done these association studies of microcephaly births occurring in the United States and seeing a high rate of those births coming from mothers who recently traveled to endemic areas, that uh, has led for this observation to be made of this very rare event happening with this very rare exposure. Uh, yeah, I, it, it makes sense. As opposed to, obviously, if you have two common things that are coinciding, there's a much like much likelier chance that it happens by luck alone. Right. So, yeah. I mean, other common things like just, you know, hair color or things like that are not mentioned in the, uh, or any of these clinical syndromes. This is a, this is a very rare thing and it's associated with a very rare exposure. Okay. So the next criteria that they list in the in the Shepherd's model is uh, having an an animal model, and that has is not been demonstrated yet for the Zika virus. So that is one of the criteria that they don't uh, address at all. But the next one is biologic plausibility. So so far we've been talking about epidemiologic associations, clinical 
uh, impressions and uh, statistical relationships. The, the next criteria, which is a, a critical one, is does this make sense from some kind of, uh, you know, with biological evidence, basic science evidence? And the authors say that this is, quote, clearly met, and they have a few lines of evidence to, to support this claim. So the first is that it's not uh, a novel impression that viruses uh, are known to cause uh, neurological congenital defects. Uh, rubella, CMV, there's a variety of uh, congenital syndromes with neurological impairment uh, that are known to be from uh, viral exposures. So that's not new and is well established with uh, you know a, a long uh, history of, of biological evidence. More specifically for the Zika virus, Zika virus RNA has actually been identified and isolated in the brains of uh, fetuses and and newborns uh, with uh, you know robust uh, molecular testing, and the active virus has actually been cultured from the brains of affected fetuses, so both pathological and uh, in utero uh, evaluations, and they've demonstrated the virus to be in relevant parts of the brain that that uh, contribute to the syndrome. So, in addition to all of these uh, epidemiological associations. There is this uh, clear um, molecular and you know, microbiological evidence as well. Okay, perfect. So those are the, those are the the six uh, criteria that are uh, outlined in the Shepherd's criteria for a teratogen. There is uh, one seventh criteria that is used uh, when there's a chemical or medical exposure as opposed to an infectious agent. Obviously, not relevant here. So four of the six criteria are fully met. One is partially met, and the animal model uh, does not uh, exist yet. So the final impression, again, of these authors from the CDC is uh, there's a causal relationship between Zika virus and the syndrome that includes uh, most notably microcephaly. Okay, so we've been hearing about this possible link between Zika virus and microcephaly, and I guess now we're talking about a whole range of other neurological birth defects for months now. So... What changes now that the CDC has come out and said definitively, in their opinion, uh, there is a causal link? So I think whenever there's widely publicized uh, news about any infectious disease, there's uh, obviously a a range of, of responses that go from complete overreaction to inappropriate uh, you know, disregard. And I think from the perspective of the CDC, for this particular exposure and syndrome, they obviously feel that there is a real relationship here and that it is serious enough for them to uh, make this definitive statement. And it is their intention and hope that by with uh, in no uncertain terms declaring this relationship that people can move on from, you know, what's happening here? Is this a real thing? Do I need to take this seriously? To, you know, yes, it is real. Yes, it does need to be taken seriously and move the emphasis from uh, describing the problem to trying to prevent and, and solve the problem in terms of, you know, where attention and ultimately, uh, you know, from their perspective as well, funding uh, is, is uh, directed. Right. And certainly there have been at least some strains of 
doubters or people saying that, you know, perhaps this is a, a spurious association. So this strong statement about causality, I guess, is really important in that regard. And so do they comment on what the next steps they think should be taken? Well, they don't, um, in the article, go into tremendous detail uh, about that. There was a New York Times uh, article that we can uh, link to as well that came out on the same day uh, that the article was published, where they interviewed a lot of uh, the authors and some of the other leadership at the, at the CDC. And, you know, in terms of in terms of next steps, they basically, you know, there are interests in vaccine development. There's concern that as the uh, summer months approach, uh, that in the United States and the southern states like Texas and Florida, there's going to be uh, a real likelihood that the mosquitoes harboring the Zika virus will be in these areas. So what kind of public health uh, interventions are going to be necessary to try to minimize uh, infections and exposures? So having the uh, kind of appropriate funding and infrastructure for that. Some of the people who lead the agencies um, that would be responsible for implementing these types of public uh, health efforts say that they don't have specific funding for this. So they're, you know, the article calls for that, obviously. Um, so I think it's trying to put the question of this being a real problem behind us, answering it in the affirmative that it is a real problem, and focusing the attention on uh, solutions from uh, in all aspects of you know public health both uh, immediate prevention strategies, awareness campaigns, and, and vaccine development, which obviously is a, a more long to medium term uh, issue. Okay. Th- thanks very much, Nathan. That was, uh, that was really interesting. I thank you as if it's like you did the work or something. Well, That's you're probably- welcome, Amol. And um, on behalf of the CDC uh, <laughs> and Dr. Shepard of the Shepherd's Criteria, I, uh, I I hope you're able to appreciate uh, some of the things that we we look for in <laughs> defining something as a teratogen. <laughs> Thanks, Nathan. I think it's probably my favorite thing about the. Every week, I get this like infusion of self confidence that, like, wow, there's a lot of we're doing a lot of good work. These days. <laughs> um, all right, Nathan. So before we get too high on our horses, let's. Um, go back to Jennifer Peng to tell us the answer to the two truths, one lie segment and maybe bring us down a notch or two. Hey everyone, welcome back to two truths, one lie. Earlier in the episode, we told you guys three statements, two were true and one was a lie. So to refresh your memory, here they are again. Statement number one, there is no medical need for oral contraceptive pills to be prescribed in a cycle of 21 days on and seven days off. Statement number two, as part of the lactational amenorrhea method of birth control, if a breastfeeding woman has not yet regained her period, she will not be able to get pregnant again. And statement number three, the risk for venous thrombosis in women who take low-dose oral contraceptive pills is lower than the risk for venous thrombosis in pregnancy. Do you know which one was the lie? The answer is statement number two. As part of the lactational amenorrhea method of birth control, if a breastfeeding woman has not yet regained her period, she will not be able to get pregnant again. The truth is, with lactational amenorrhea, if used perfectly, there is a 1-2% chance of pregnancy in the first 6 months postpartum if a woman is exclusively breastfeeding. However, the presence of a period is not always a reliable way to infer fertility. 
It is possible that a woman may be ovulating, but the endometrium is not stimulated enough to shed. Therefore, breastfeeding women should be educated on the role of alternative methods of birth control, such as condoms, in the postpartum period. Statement number one was correct. The 21-7 cycle was actually an attempt to make the idea of oral contraceptive pills more acceptable to women, clinicians, and the church. And statement three was also correct. The baseline risk of VTE in women of reproductive age is about 4 in 10,000. The risk of VTE in women who take low-dose oral contraceptive pills is about two times that baseline risk, whereas the risk of venous thrombosis associated with pregnancy is about 15 times the baseline risk. So did you guys guess the false statement correctly? Let us know on Twitter by tweeting us at Roundstable. Hope you enjoyed it, and I'll catch you guys next time. And we're back! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You knew I was going to do that. Okay, Nathan, let's change gears and talk about income and life expectancy in the United States. A special communication that was published in JAMA by Raj Chetty and colleagues. Uh, And much like the Zika virus paper, this paper is a big deal. So what's, uh, what's what's the main punchline here, Mon? The main punchline is that this paper brings an enormous depth and breadth of data to study the relationship between income and longevity in the United States and finds that there is a strong relationship between income and life expectancy and that there are some interesting associations in the relationship between income and life expectancy uh, that vary by your geographic region. All right. So why don't you tell us uh, why this study was done and a bit about the background uh, that the authors were considering? Yeah. So this study has been the project of a team of superstar economists, uh, partially at Harvard, partially at Stanford. The lead author is at Stanford. Um, to examine the relationship between income and various socioeconomic indicators and lifespan. And the rationale is that, you know, we there is a body of evidence that suggests that income is associated with lifespan. Uh, but there are some important outstanding questions. So one is that we didn't really understand the shape of the relationship between income and lifespan. So we didn't know whether it was a linear relationship that just the more money you have, the longer you live, or whether there's some kind of threshold effect. We didn't know about changes over time. And, you know, uh, specifically, this is looking in the United States and how, um, you know, there's been a whole debate about income inequality, but relating that to health outcomes and lifespan um, and changes over time hasn't really been done uh, there's been some questions about variations at the local level and whether geography matters. And there also have been some important questions around the main drivers of why socioeconomic status is associated with longevity. So basically trying to get at understanding the causal relationship, if you will. So, you know, there there aren't a shepherd's criteria for <laughs> the relationship between, uh, you know, uh, income and longevity, but trying to get at some of those those causal linkages. Well, we can't all have uh, criteria like Shepard's criteria to share in our... So this study uh, used a de-identified database 
using federal income tax records as well as social security records for the entire U.S. population. And it included all individuals who had a valid social security number between 1999 and 2014. So this is like a massive amount of data. Uh, Okay. So the analytic methods that they use are fairly complicated, and I don't want to get too into the weeds with them. But the important concept here is that they looked at an estimated lifespan for people once you reached 40 years of age. So they looked at your life expectancy after 40 years. And they associated that with income. And specifically, they looked at the income two years prior to the lifespan measurement. And the measure that they used for income was effectively your household income before taxes, basically. Um, And so here's what they found. So their data set included 1.4 billion observations their data set included people between the ages of 40 and 76. They looked specifically at that age range. So examining this relationship, they reached really four major conclusions. And I think it makes sense to just walk through each of their main conclusions one at a time. All right. So the first conclusion is that higher income is associated with longer life. And the relationship between the two exists throughout the income distribution, meaning that The richer you were, the longer you lived. There's no threshold or plateau effect. Okay. So, which is kind of interesting, right? Like, I think you could imagine how money to a certain point contributes to longevity. Uh, But in the observations that they've made here, actually, the richer you are, the longer you live. And so what Uh, kind of uh, differences are we seeing in terms of life expectancy, like for someone who makes 50,000 compared to 100,000 compared to a million? Yeah. uh, And just to finish. What's the the quantitative difference there? Yeah. So the quantitative difference here, the way they compared people is they they looked at percentiles. So if you look at men in the top 1% of income, their average life expectancy is just over 87 years. If you look at men in the bottom 1% of income, their average life expectancy is under 73 years. Wow. So it's a difference of 14.6 years. And what are the incomes in those uh, top and bottom percentiles? So to give you the sense of the spread between the income, so they don't actually make it super easy in their paper to know what the 1% income ranges were, but the bottom 10%, the 10th percentile, the bottom 10th percent, had an household income of $14,000 a year, so fairly low. Yeah. Whereas the top 10th percent was $224,000 per year. So how does that relationship change as income increases? Is there any kind of uh, income threshold where things seem to even out, recognizing that it still does increase uh, as income rises? So if you define incomes by percentile, so you take the whole population and you split them up into what percentage they fit in in terms of the income distribution, and you relate that to lifespan, it's a linear relationship throughout. So the difference between 1%, the top 1% and the top 2% is the same as the difference between the bottom 1% and the bottom 2%. So it's a linear relationship throughout. There's a linear slope. Now, if you look at income in pure dollar amounts, that linear relationship doesn't hold. 
you get more life expectancy gain at the bottom end for every additional dollar that you earn as opposed to at the top end. Does that make sense? So Yeah, that does make sense. And I mean, I, one can imagine that in the top, the range of incomes in the top 10 percentile is huge. Yeah, that's right. So actually, they, they did a really helpful presentation of this in the paper. So for example, the life expectancy gain is somewhere between 0.7 and 0.9 years, whether you go from the 10th percentile to the 15th percentile or the 90th percentile to the 95th percentile. But the dollar figure is dramatically different, right? So in the bottom range, you gained $6,000 and basically just under one year of life. In the top range, it was $1.7 million difference and you gained about one year of life. Very interesting. So what uh, what do these authors propose the main implications of this uh, finding to be? Yeah, well, let me, let me uh, comment on two more small points about this. So one is that there was a bit of a difference in gender. So the effect that we've been talking about have been all the data for males. For women, uh, the differences are a little bit less. So for men, I told you that the difference between the top 1% and bottom 1% was almost 15 years. For women, it was just over 10 years. Um, if we look at how we can put this in context, the authors did something interesting. They compared the bottom 1% and the top 1% or the distributions of longevity to countries around the world. So men in the United States in the top 1% have the highest life expectancy of men anywhere in the world at about 87 years. Hmm. For men in the bottom 1%, they have life expectancies similar to the mean life expectancies for 40-year-old men in Sudan and Pakistan. Wow. Um, So that's pretty, you know, striking. The other interesting thing they said is that the difference in longevity between the top 1% and bottom 1% is equivalent to the change in longevity between a smoker and a non-smoker. Wow. And so those are, you know, those are two statistics or figures and comparisons that I think really bring home the enormous effect of income on lifespan. And uh, the policy implications that flow from this are related to probably the the other three findings, which I think we can go through in a little bit uh, more quick uh, pace. So the the second important category of findings or conclusion is that um, they looked at life expectancy gains over time from 2001 to 2014. And what they found is what you might expect they would find is that the life expectancy gains were greater in the high income groups. So from 2001 to 2014, the highest income quartile, so now we're talking about the top 25% of people, gained three years of life expectancy in the United States. That's pretty great. Like that's a dramatic increase in life expectancy. The comparison that they used is that the life expectancy gain of three years would be the same as if you cured all cancer. Um, Impressive. So so money does cure cancer. Yeah, so that's pretty good. Whereas... If you look at the lowest income quartile, there's been no life expectancy gain from 2001 to 2014. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously in the whole conversation around inequality and widening inequality, this is a pretty striking figure. Their, um, their third important contribution here is to look at area variation. So, and this is really fascinating. Okay. So they looked at how your geographic placement affects your lifespan. And 
you know, we tend to have a sense that your neighborhood or where you live is associated with how healthy you are. Um, and what they found was that the variation in longevity, depending on where you live, is substantial for low-income individuals, but not for high-income individuals. The actual numbers here is that in the bottom income quartile, so the bottom 25% of income, your life expectancy differs about by about four or five years, depending upon where you live. Whereas for the richest quartile, your life expectancy differs only by about two years. And if you go up into the you know top 1%, we're talking about very little differences in where you live and its effect on your lifespan. But presumably the types of places where the very wealthy people live are still extremely different from the types of places where the majority of very poor people live. Yeah, and, so it depends it, a little it, bit. And it does make sense that if you're very, 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 very poor, but you're fortunate enough to live in a quote-unquote better uh, neighborhood, uh, one of for whatever circumstances that you're going to have, you know, a different different access to services and community, whereas the very, very, very wealthy people, all the places that they live are going to have those things. Yeah, so you're right. And I think there are a variety of uh, ways you could explain this relationship. And what they found was that the regions with the highest life expectancies were clustered in California. And those with the lowest life expectancies were clustered in the industrial Midwest. And specifically what they found was that for poor people, if poorer people live in cities where there's more education um, and more affluence generally, uh, poorer people tend to live much longer. That makes sense. Well, it it raises a couple of important questions about why that is. And you raised some explanations. So one might be that those regions like cities where there's a lot more wealth, maybe they have uh, more funding for public services in those areas. Um, other explanations are that maybe they have public policies that promote health better in those areas, such as bans on smoking. Or maybe people who live in those areas are influenced to behave like the healthier people around them. Um, and then on the other side, maybe it's just that, like you said, the, the makeup of the populations in different areas are substantially different. And so maybe what a poor person in the city looks like is substantially different than a poor person you know, in a rural area. Uh, the And a simple example of that would be maybe there's a larger share of poorer people because of immigration in cities as opposed to poorer people as a result of, you know, generational poverty in other areas. Mm -hmm. The last, I think, important conclusion for us to touch on is they looked at the factors of different geographic areas that are associated with lifespan, different factors, things like health behaviors, access to healthcare, income inequality, all these different things, and said, what are the things that correlate well with lifespan? And the main correlate that was probably the most important was uh, health behaviors, so smoking, obesity, and exercise, highly correlated with uh, lifespan. And surprisingly, a lot of the other things were not as correlated. And so, you know, that raises a lot of really interesting and important implications in terms of policy. What are the main takeaways 
I think the first real main takeaway is that there is clearly a strong association between income and lifespan. The important point that uh, geographic variation has a bigger effect on poorer people is really important. And, and this paper highlights some of the ways that we might improve those health outcomes, specifically at promoting healthy behaviors. I think I'm going to definitely walk away with the Sudan-Pakistan statistic and the smoking statistic. Yeah, I agree. Those were uh, highly compelling. And uh, I'm sure it's not that different uh, type of a range that we have here at, in Canada, too. Okay. I think we've bludgeoned our two blockbuster issues to death. So let's move on to our something a little bit more lighthearted. Nathan, our good stuff segment. Tell me something short and sweet that caught your attention from the world of medicine this week. So the title of uh, my good stuff uh, piece, which was a podcast that I listened to uh, this week, may not sound uh, so lighthearted, but it, I can assure you that it's definitely worth uh, listening to. It's uh, a podcast called uh, The Man Who Studied a Thousand Deaths to Learn How to Live. It's, uh, it was on the, the Tim Ferriss Show, which is a podcast I listen to regularly. And this is a podcast where this uh, Tim Ferriss guy interviews uh, a whole bunch of different interesting people, a different person each episode. And this episode was about a palliative care doctor called B.J. Miller from San Francisco, who's a, a fascinating guy, uh, a lot of uh, interesting personal experiences in addition to his uh, work uh, as, a, as a palliative care doctor. And uh, they have a, a two-hour discussion about uh, you know, perspectives on life and death and uh, living better that uh, I thought was very compelling and uh, worth a listen. Oh, that's such a great recommendation. I'm like adding it to my podcast list as we uh, as we speak. And it's so fascinating that you recommended a podcast because I'm going to do the same. No way. Seriously. All right. So uh, the podcast I'm recommending is something that I've really enjoyed listening to for some time now, which is called The Weeds. Um, and it's a policy podcast by the folks at Vox.com. And it's hosted by three people who are very, I think, well-regarded in terms of journalism and public intellectualism. So that's Ezra Klein, Sarah Cliff, and Matt Iglesias. I'm recommending the podcast in general because I just think it's usually really great. Um, but specifically, Sarah Cliff is their health reporter, and they often talk about healthcare issues. They've done some really great episodes about Obamacare. They have talked about... Um, the rising health premiums and looking at some explanations for that. Uh, they have recently talked about the struggle for the medical community to digitize and why we're having such a hard time with electronic medical records. And uh, one of the episodes that I thought was really fascinating was one about why teen births are plummeting. Uh, and it was their Christmas Day episode. And they talk about how the teen birth rate fell in half from the mid-2000s uh, to now uh, and talk about whether MTV's show 16 and Pregnant might have anything to do with it as well as various <laughs> other uh, uh, sort of socioeconomic and policy implications. So that's my recommendation. All right. New podcast for both of us. Now, notwithstanding, this is going to take away from our time that we have to earn as much money as we can, which seems like uh, the most important thing we should be doing, right? <laughs> I think that's what we've learned. Earn as much money as we can and use it to travel to places that are not affected by Zika virus. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Um, Keys to a happy life. Well, at least a long life. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, two very important issues that were all about correlations and causations today, Nathan. Thanks for the uh, conversation, Amol. Nice to chat with you, and let's do it again soon. Can't wait. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for listening.